Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome back to World Weekly with me, Tom O'Sullivan, Assistant World News Editor at the FT. I'm sitting in for Gideon Rackman, who, as we speak, is en route to South Africa and could by Sunday be the last Englishman there. I'm joined in the studio by Helen Worrell, our Asia page editor. Hello. Peter Smith, our Australia correspondent. Hello. And we welcome back Richard McGregor, our deputy news editor. Hi there. It's been a busy week as always, with preparations being made for the G20, with the departure of Stanley McChrystal, uh, the man responsible for US and NATO forces in Afghanistan, and in the UK, the most severe budget cuts seen for a generation. However, we're turning our attention to Australia's first female Prime Minister. We'll be asking Peter Smith what went wrong with Kevin Rudd's leadership and what we can expect from his replacement, Julia Gillard. After that, we'll hear from our Washington correspondent, Dan Dombey, about the sacking of US and NATO commander for Afghanistan, General Stanley McChrystal. Today I accepted General Stanley McChrystal's resignation as commander of the International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan. I did so with considerable regret, but also with certainty that it is the right thing for our mission in Afghanistan, for our military, and for our country. Helen Worrell will be asking, among other things, what does the sacking reveal about the Obama administration? And finally, we'll turn our attention to the upcoming G20 meeting on the weekend in Toronto, and Richard McGregor will give us his insights into the ongoing issue with the renminbi and how China will be received at the meeting. Uh, first, though, we turn to, to Peter Smith. Peter, I guess the question many people will, will be asking is just what went wrong for Kevin Rudd? Well, in the end, clearly he lost the support of his own party, so his own party basically threw him out. But I think before that, uh, he was certainly tanking in the polls. He'd been tanking in the polls for the last three or four months. It had really come to a head, though, over the last month, uh, particularly over the government's plans to introduce a 40% resource super profits tax but prior to that, a very damaging backflip on his emissions trading scheme laws. He'd previously said that climate change was the greatest moral challenge of our times. And then all of a sudden, you know, he decided that he would suspend, you know, the government's proposed climate change laws for out into 2013 or so. Just how damaging has the resource tax been for, for Rudd and for the Labour Party? Well, I think it went to the point that um, Kevin Rudd has shown that he really failed to consult even within his own party and he certainly failed to consult the mining industry before really springing the surprise of this policy on them and then clearly they reacted with fury to the tax and they waged a very high profile campaign out on the airwaves chief executives from bhp rio tinto you name it an advertising campaign and they were really digging their heels in now kevin rudd because he had backflipped on a number of very key policy announcements prior to this he'd really boxed himself into a corner so once he'd made the announcement about the tax it was very difficult for him to then maneuver his way out of it so i would suggest that the the mining tax was probably the last straw for kevin rudd i mean what's the expectation now in terms of the resource tax um julia gillard came out earlier today said that she'd throw the doors open to the mining sector i.e she will 
She will do some of the things that Rudd didn't. She will negotiate, she will talk to them. But what can the mining sector expect? Well, I think it's still fairly uncertain. I think what she has said very clearly is that she is prepared to sit down and have a thorough negotiation with the mining industry. She has refused, though, to date to establish the parameters. But, you know, there are some obvious things that they could probably do. They may lower the 40% rate. Uh, They may increase the hurdle rate. They could exclude certain sectors. The coal bed methane or coal seam gas sector uh, may be excluded, and they may also then ditch certain low-margin commodities like sand and gravel. So they might say those sorts of commodities are completely excluded from the tax. And Richard, what's your feeling on this? What would the response be in Australia to um, her taking over and replacing Rudd, both from within the Labour Party, who seem to be certain elements supportive of her, but also the opposition? It's unpredictable as to whether anybody is up to the job of Prime Minister uh, when they take the job. It's a whole new ball game, but you know, she's a byword for competence, efficiency. She sells her policies well and has been very successful in getting some difficult issues up. She's got the respect of the business community. And I think many people in the Labor Party, this sounds risky, but many people in the Labor Party, you know, with Rudd, they were going down the drain with her. They think they can actually increase their majority. But, you know, she's untested in an election campaign. So we'll have to wait and see. You mentioned the policies that she has been instrumental in, in enforcing through. I mean, what what, what areas has she, has she concentrated on? Well, she negotiated a new industrial relations regime, which sort of struck a balance between the sort of very Darwinian regime of the previous Howard government and the demands of the unions. And I think she also pushed through a very popular program on schools, demanding that schools publish performance data, which teachers unions had been resisting, and she basically swept that aside. And I think they're the two big policies identified in the public mind. Peter, what is Julia Gillard's relationship with this all-important union faction that Richard mentioned there? She certainly comes from the left, although people say that she's very much a middle-of-the-road politician. Certainly, you know, her, her power base initially within the Labour Party came from the left. Like a lot of people on the left seeking power, she's migrated a, a little to the right and the centre, but... The factions in Australia have got all sorts of funny names. There's the hard left and the soft left and the Victorian left and, the, you know, this, that and the other and various uh, trade union fiefdoms. The ideology of the factional system is much less than it used to be and now they're usually centred around individuals, their personal fiefdoms, even if they have names like left and right. In terms of what the, the world might expect from Julia Gillard, she's decided not to go to the G20 summit this weekend, instead sending her new deputy. Clearly, domestically, there's, there's, a, there's an election coming, but internationally, what can people expect from a, from a Gillard government? I'm not expecting any major policy announcements between now and the election. I think there's going to be a lot of tweaking and there may be some redressing of some policy areas where there have been problems. We've already referenced the mining tax. There will be probably a bit more work on the climate change and what's going to happen with that debate. And I think the other thing that she has mentioned is that you know, the asylum seekers issue is a big one in Australia. It's a political hot potato. The government had gone in saying that they were going to take a much more mature, humane approach but there's a bit of a backlash in the community about the number of boats arriving and she may be forced to address that issue, which has been a very contentious one. Thank you very much, Peter. Um, Moving on, uh, we're now going to take a look at uh, Stanley McChrystal and the story that's really dominated Washington for the last couple of days. Well, I spoke to the US diplomatic editor in Washington, Dan Dombey, earlier today about McChrystal's surprise resignation following an article in Rolling Stone magazine in which his own aides were quoted criticising senior figures in the Obama administration. Today I accepted 
General Stanley McChrystal's resignation as commander of the International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan. I did so with considerable regret, but also with certainty that it is the right thing for our mission in Afghanistan, for our military, and for our country. So, Dan, we heard President Obama saying there that this is definitely the right thing for the Afghan mission. But what does the change of command at such a high level actually mean for the future of the U.S. military effort in Afghanistan? Well, I think it means several things, actually. I mean, first of all, you have an inevitable delay. Uh, President Obama has chosen the one man in the military who is most associated with his strategy other than General McChrystal himself. He's chosen a man who's already been active in the area uh, because he was General McChrystal's immediate superior. But in David Petraeus, he's chosen someone who doesn't know Afghanistan as well as General McChrystal did and who uh, therefore will take some time to really get up to speed in the way that General McChrystal was in terms of knowing the entire operation throughout the country. Admirable soldier though he is. I would say one other thing in terms of what it means for Afghanistan. It was a very strong statement that President Obama said yesterday, and it was much less equivocal than the speech he gave in the West Point in December when he announced the surge, but he also announced plans to start withdrawing in July 2011. So what does this mean? It means that the president effectively is much more committed to this war than he was even on Monday or Tuesday this week. You mentioned Obama's commitment to the Afghan mission there, but what does this change at a very high level of the command structure actually mean for the troops on the ground? Will it filter down at all to them? I think this is likely to filter down in a few ways. First of all, the dismissal of uh, General McChrystal is likely to be something that many people may take quite badly. He was very, very popular with his troops in many ways. He was seen as a person who was more willing to be out there on the campaign grounds rather than back at base or back in Washington. And I think uh, him being removed in this way may be unpopular with some of the people in the forces in Afghanistan, although I would add that many retired and serving officers felt that he simply had to go because of insubordination. But it means one other thing as well. Um, General Petraeus obviously has enormous political skills that General McChrystal lacked. It also means that General Petraeus is in a very strong position so, but if he wants that force in Afghanistan to remain a little longer, if indeed he's even thinking about asking for more troops, something that the administration really doesn't want to give, that may now be much more of a possibility. Obviously, Petraeus will be leaving his job in Washington as head of the Central Command to go to Afghanistan. So where will this leave CENTCOM? Will they be left in the lurch with a, a job vacancy to fill? Yes, I mean, there is this danger here. General Petraeus, obviously, is leaving his job as head of central command. That's a command that uh, really is responsible for perhaps the most strategic part of the world, for the U.S., including many Arab countries, uh, including Iraq. It's incredibly important. It's incredibly important because, you know, for example, the U.S. is in the process of drawing down to 50,000 troops in Iraq uh, by the end of the summer at a time when there still is not a government formed after the Iraq's um, elections this spring is incredibly important because, as most people in the Pentagon will tell you, Pakistan is more important to U.S. security than Afghanistan, and the CENTCOM commander's relationship with Pakistan is a tremendously significant one. It will be hard to find someone to fit that gap. If Petraeus was the only person who could kind of step into McChrystal's shoes with it with missing just a beat or two, it's hard to find someone in the military who will be able to be Petraeus' superior and able to hold that post with authority with the knowledge of the region that Petraeus had as well. You mentioned earlier, Dan, that Obama was particularly decisive in his speech in the Rose Garden. Where do you think this, this leaves his presidency? 
Do you think he sounds more like the commander-in-chief that he's wanted to be? Well, many people have said this. This has been something that actually you've heard from people like uh, Joe Lieberman, the independent senator who supported John McCain in 2008, and uh, again, people in the Pentagon. They say that it was a commander-in-chief moment that Obama was crisp, that he, he, he looked like a president. Actually, ironically, the teleprompter, which he's often been ridiculed on uh, for relying on, uh, didn't work, so it looked uh, his comments seemed somehow to come more from the heart. It was everything in short that his speech on BP from the Oval Office last week was not. It seemed to be a moment where he was not a president a victim of events, but a president who was shaping events. And in that sense, I think it went down well. But there is one irony here. It was a presidential moment. It was a high-level dismissal at a time of war of a leading commander. Those things are rare in America and they're momentous in America. But its upshot is, is that the balance of power between Barack Obama and David Petraeus is distinctly skewed right now. This is Obama's war, more than it was before. But it's Petraeus's to win this war. And if Petraeus wants more troops, as I said, if Petraeus wants more times, it's going to be very hard to gainsay. So one of the central ironies here is that at a moment that Barack Obama said was incredibly important to assert the civilian control of the military, it's a military man, David Petraeus, who ends up holding many of the cards. That was Dan Dombey speaking to us from Washington. Obviously, this has dominated the headlines, this story, and one of the really key questions is, did Obama make the right decision here? I think undoubtedly he did. I think if his his authority is ridiculed and challenged so openly, I think he had to respond. And as Dan Dombey just said, his speech was quite commander-in-chief-like, straight from the heart, so in an odd sort of way he's been elevated by the whole incident. How much do you think this new mode of decisiveness is to do with Obama's supposed dithering over BP, Tom? I think if he'd had a choice, this wasn't a decision he would have made. You know, this came out of the blue. He was handed a copy of Rolling Stone magazine on Monday night and had to make a decision fairly quickly about whether or not it was sustainable to keep General McChrystal in his position. As Richard says, he's in a way come out of this in a more authoritative looking way but but the proof of this will really come with what happens in the next 12 months in Afghanistan but the, the other point I would make on this is that while it's correct that that you know he's taken a decisive move it's gone down incredibly badly with some of the NATO allies some of the people that we've been speaking to over the last couple of days are saying they were firstly very shocked that this would happen but also they're asking you know whether they're going to be able to sell this domestically because for a number of allies including the UK Afghanistan is becoming an unpopular war Absolutely. Well, we'll be following this story in the FT and on FT.com. Thanks, Helen. Now, the other story which has been hitting the headlines and will continue to do so over the weekend is the meeting of the G20, which takes place in Toronto on Saturday and Sunday. Ahead of the meeting, there have been a number of different discussions about actually the divisions within the G20, whether it be over bank levies or whether it be over uh, austerity measures versus uh, in continuing stimulus measures. But one issue that was, many people thought, going to dominate this meeting was the renminbi. The sting's been taken out of that a little bit by moves by Beijing last weekend to allow uh, more flexibility into its exchange rate. Richard, where does this leave China going to the G20? Well, in terms of global politics, it was a very well-timed announcement by Beijing. I think they've made an in-principle decision some time ago to remove the peg from the dollar, to move back to a, you know, a flexible managed exchange rate, if that's not an oxymoron. It was just a matter of the timing of the decision. Their exports were very healthy in May. 
um, and why not announce it then before the G20 so that the issue of Chinese China's currency, uh, as far as possible, was was taken off the table. And I think it probably has diffused it as an issue for G20. And also, beyond that, China is quite desperate not to become an issue in the November midterm elections in the US. So I think that explains the timing of the move. And in terms of the reaction to the move, because initially Beijing was saying that this was a sort of domestic uh, matter, the domestic move, clearly it, it sent out a major signal to uh, some of the critics in the US. Um, but those critics are still criticising Beijing and, and saying they haven't done enough. Well, I'm not an expert on Washington, but I certainly get the impression uh, from the people the FT has been speaking to that China's critics are still there in Congress, but they've had the rug pulled from under them, really, and they will struggle to get any momentum on any of the bills they've been putting forward uh, seeking to penalise uh, Chinese imports. So in terms of, of the broader G20 over the weekend, what do you think will be will be dominating the agenda? The big issue is the issue of fiscal stimulus and the rate of withdrawal of that stimulus. The US obviously has been on the sort of bearish side, if you like, uh, favouring uh, continued stimulus. But in Europe, we're getting a sort of wave of austerity, if you like, where countries are focusing on their budgets. Now, China's obviously not part of that because the China stimulus program has been unwinding for a while uh, after having a very successful impact. So the real focus of G20 is how the Europeans and the Americans uh, uh, paper over or manage what are, I think, starting to be quite clear differences on how to sort of finally bring their economies out of the deep uh, slumps they fell into in the global financial crisis. Okay, thank you for that, Richard. Uh, so we've heard again about um, the situation with a new Prime Minister in Australia, um, a new man in charge of the US NATO efforts in Afghanistan, and looking forward at, at what may or develop out of the G20 meeting on the weekend. A whole host of other things will be coming our way in the next few days. Uh, financial regulations legislation will start to take an even firmer form. We'll be looking again, as we just discussed, at the G20. Uh, and for those who can actually face it, there will be more on the World Cup. Uh, that's it for this week. Uh, all that's left is to thank Richard, Peter and Dan in Washington, and of course Helen, and to thank you for listening. World Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.